Well, I hope you've been enjoying our series in Acts. Um, We're there again today, and we're going to be hanging out in Acts chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles there, we'll be stretching a little bit back in the 4 and a little bit forward in the 6. But if you've got your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 5. And I've really enjoyed um, this series and been greatly blessed by Matt Chandler, who's really helped resource and and my my thinking in this as well. So I just wanted to, um, to, I guess acknowledge that you know it's always good when you're preaching to use resources commentaries you know different other preachers who preach through things so Matt Shannon has been a good resource for me last week we came to understand uh, that where the gospel of Jesus is preached there will always be those who respond with praise and there will also be those who are offended by it but what about inside the church what about inside the church So at this point in Acts, the church in Jerusalem seems to be the most amazing place. See, these people are marked by gratitude, they're marked by praise, they're marked by generosity, they're marked by gladness, and and all needs are being met, and no one is going without. And it's just the most amazing description of this faith community that is there honouring Christ in all things. And they seem to be as happy in the Lord as you can imagine. Now, there are places that the Lord has established that were meant to be safe, were meant to be life-giving and encouraging, yet actually, due to our fallen nature and sin, are sometimes the complete opposite. They're painful, challenging, and can be a source of sadness instead of joy. Just think about the family unit. This is meant to be a place of safety, a place where children are nurtured and encouraged and given the best possible start in life, a place to succeed and flourish. Yet how many times do we hear of the family unit failing to provide this. We hear of kids being abused by a parent or family member, being neglected and uncared for and due to substance abuse. And these poor kids end up in foster homes and these poor little souls because of sin, instead of being nurtured and loved and encouraged, experience quite the opposite. You know, and for those people that work in the foster care system who provide that grace and that mercy where these these poor little souls have not found it before. Just all strength to anyone that does that. You know, providing that that nurture and encouragement where it's been lacking for these kids. But another institution that God has given us for our protection, for our growth, and for our guidance is the church. And if you can be honest, and, and we were just looking at the church in Jerusalem, they were all glad, they had it all together, had everything in common. There was very little disunity, no backstabbing, Oh, you know, and if we have to be honest, that's not most of our experiences in churches, is it? If we have to be honest, if if you could in honesty say that in my church background, I've been in places where I feel like I was wounded, betrayed, not cared for, neglected, and saw some stuff that made me question if God was real based on people's works. Will you raise your hand? If you have observed or experienced some nasty things in church, I know I certainly have. My hand's raised, you know. That's been my real experience, and not just in one church. What was meant to be an encouragement to us all in the Lord, what was meant to build us up in the Lord, what was meant to remind us of God's goodness, what was meant to remind us of God's good grace and mercy to protect us, to lead us and guide us, actually turned out to sometimes be 
an extremely difficult thing that made us question God's love, question whether or not these people leading were actually saved and ultimately can leave us sometimes feeling betrayed, broken, dirty and empty. I've been there. A lot of you have been there. Because there are no perfect churches ever. Just like I just put it out there, there's no perfect churches ever. They don't exist. Jerusalem, they looked like they were nailing it, didn't they? You know, the description we have of the Jerusalem church is one of just amazing flourishing of the gospel, everyone being looked for after, everyone glad, and they had a couple of good months. You know, and when you head along to a new church, the first couple of months usually are pretty good, especially if you're welcomed warmly, which I hope you were today, and there's good coffee, we should have that as well, and a nice morning tea. Oh, I'll tell you what, I thought that the first day we're here was just like a special morning tea. It's like every week. Oh, we better not get used to it. Maybe not. Our waistlines might might struggle more than mine is already. But you know what? Give it a couple of months, and I'm sure that there will be something that will disappoint you. Maybe it will be today's message. I don't know. But, you know, there will be something that will disappoint you within just a few months. So last week where we left off was that we were meant to be bold but compassionate. We don't waver in the faith. We don't soften the message of the gospel in order to gain more converts, to make it more palatable to predominant culture. That's not what we're doing. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We're not ashamed of that message. And so we read, in Jerusalem they had all things in common. Acts 4, 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas, he sells a lot of land that he had and he then brings the proceeds of that and places it in glad submission at the apostles' feet for their distribution. And no doubt praised God through it all. Ananias, he sees that. Acts 5 verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died and great fear seized all who heard what had happened then some young men came forward wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him about three hours later his wife came in not knowing what had happened peter asked her tell me is this the price you and ananias got for the land yes she said that is the price peter said to her how could you conspire to test the spirit of the lord listen the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I would guess so. I would guess that, you know, there would be great fear considering that someone had just been killed by God for lying. Anyone else fearful now? Raise the hand. Oh, no. You're also alive. Hey, there we go. That's good. Okay, we're fine. Are we? But let's drill down on a few things happening here. So one of the challenges facing the church, and it's been clear since Ananias' death and Sapphira's, it's something for us to battle against. One of the drifts that befall the church of Jesus Christ is the drift 
towards hypocrisy. I've said it. How many times have we been accused of being hypocrites? Well, you know what? It's true. The drift and desire to look more mature than we actually are, to seek and to be hungry for the praise other people get as they pursue obedience to the Lord. And so the first thing that will always be true until the return of Christ is that among the people of God, there will always be hypocrites. Let's give the definition of hypocrisy. A pretense of having a virtuous character, moral or religious beliefs and principles, etc., that one does not really possess. And so what you saw happening was that Ananias observed Barnabas selling a plot of land and giving it to the apostles. And instead of him saying, God, give me a heart of generosity. Give me a heart that can walk open-handed with what you've given me. He instead craved the applause of men, not of God, and sought glory for himself rather than the glory of God. And so Peter asked him, why did he scheme like this? And asked his wife, why did you agree to the scheme? And so we read that Ananias faked it. He sold the property, he said he had given it all, yet kept some for himself, acting like he gave it all, and God takes his life for it. Then when his wife is questioned, she's on it, in on it too and dies as well. So I want to ask the question, how does the hypocrisy happen? How do we become hypocrites? Well, I reckon there are two primary ways that Christians become hypocrites in ways that are damaging to the name of Jesus Christ and the witness of a local congregation. The first reason almost all of us fall to hypocrisy and if there's a given moment that you're walking in hypocrisy chances are what you've forgotten is what the gospel teaches you about your relationship with the lord we forget the gospel where jesus said it is finished we forget the gospel and i've repeated this a few times over the last couple of weeks the gospel meets us where we are and tells us the truth about ourselves. And the truth about ourselves is not that we are awesome. And that's good news because if God told me I was awesome, I'm in a lot of trouble because I know me. And so what ends up happening is we start with this baseline that we're sinners in need of grace. And then we start to move past that and pretend that we're no longer sinners in need of grace. And so what ends up happening on repeat through the Christian church since Ananias and Sapphira and what continues to happen today is that there are those who have come, heard the word of God, received the word of God and they begin to look around and watch other people and they're like, oh, okay, this is, you know, what... This is the way they do things around here. This is the way people speak here. This is the way they, they, they look here. This is the culture of the church. And so they begin to speak like, look like, and act like everyone else in the church. Now what happens to the hypocrite, and I'm not saying that that's bad, you know, we all sort of like want to fit in, but what happens to the hypocrite is that they grab hold of the language when the heart isn't there. The hypocrite grabs hold of the action and doesn't understand the heart of the matter. They might be doing the right thing, but with the wrong heart. The hypocrite forget that the gospel says that we have been rescued out of our depravity and that we are now in process. The gospel teaches that you and I are in process. It's called sanctification, right? It's an ongoing process that happens because we are not perfect yet. Now, when God looks at you, are you positionally holy? Yes. When the God of the universe looks upon those of us who are in Christ, the Bible is clear. 
We are justified by grace through faith alone. And so God looks at you and sees you as perfect, spotless and blameless and actually desires and, and, and will make you more and more and more like Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is inside you doing the work of sanctification with you to make you more like Jesus. What happens when you forget these two things are true about yourself, that you're a sinner saved by grace and that you're in process, you will turn your back on the very freeing reality that you aren't there yet and you'll begin playing the game of whatever church you're in. In this case, Ananias didn't go, God... I've got a greedy heart. I don't want a greedy heart. Free up my hands from my wealth like Barnabas. He just said, I'll do what Barnabas did. But his greed was revealed and made him hold some of it back. And then he lies. Here's all of it. And Peter's question to Ananias is really revealing. Wasn't the land yours? Why lie? The land was yours to do with as you saw fit. Why lie and tell me that you gave me all the proceeds? You didn't have to do that, but you've misrepresented yourself and lied to us all. Why are you pretending to be more than you are? You are enslaving yourself. Why? And we tend to walk in hypocrisy when we forget what the gospel has already said about us. To walk in hypocrisy is to forget that God met us where we are he pulled us out of our sin with an offer of pardon and that we are all in process. If you're looking forward to the day where you no longer repent and have the Holy Spirit through the Word of God or through relationships expose areas of your life that you have not submitted fully to Him, you know what? That day doesn't come before glory or until you quit breathing. It's a part of who we are as believers. It's an ongoing posture of confession and repentance. And hypocrisy flourishes where the gospel is not preached consistently and constantly and i'll speak more about that in a second so what leads people out of hypocrisy is the ongoing reminder that we are all in need of grace and have no secrets because god already knows and sanctification is a process the second reason is that most of us are often rarely willing to have the type of relationship that will expose where we are blind a failure to walk in community in a way that reveals what is really going on in our hearts, lives and minds. See, doubt and struggle should not be viewed as weakness among believers, among the people of God. They should be viewed as part of the journey. See, we should be free to be open and honest and share with our family here areas that we are struggling with. Doubt isn't weakness. The disciples prayed, help my unbelief. And one thing I see is absolutely vital to a healthy, growing church is a culture where intentional discipleship relationships are normal and an expected part of your walk with the Lord. And what I'd love to see develop here in this church over the coming months and years ahead is where people gather one-on-one or in small groups or in an intentional and regular basis to meet together, to talk about life and family together, to open the word together, to be open and honest and share areas of struggles, areas of doubt, areas where we need the grace of God to step into our circumstances and free us. You know, meeting over breakfast or over coffee in a park or in a knitting circle, wherever, any time that works for you. These discipleship relationships aren't necessarily just about one person investing into another, although that does happen, but it's about mutual support and, and mutual encouragement and benefit you know, to sharpen our faith, to be accountable to someone else other than our spouse, to be supported in a moment of crisis and to have godly friends celebrate with you the amazing times of blessings and joy. I've had several of these discipleship relationships over 
the years, I'd call them some great friendships. Because you get to know someone on just a different level, on a spiritual level, on a level that goes outside the footy, although Merv, I love the scarf. You know, on, on a level that, that, that goes deeper into our spiritual being. And they've all started with an intentional conversation about making our spiritual lives present in our discussions and our interaction. To open the Bible and share what God has been speaking to you that morning or that week. These kind of relationships are often particularly helpful for new Christians um, as, as you know you have the opportunity to help teach and guide you know someone in, 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 in their walk but it's also for all of us who've been saved for decades you know it's a great way to help guard against hypocrisy and to keep our faith strong and central to our lives lest we become like Ananias and Sapphira say one thing in front of our Christian brothers and sisters when the truth is very different. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So this is Solomon's way of saying there should always be someone in the trenches of life with you there should always be at least one person who knows everything about you what you're wrestling with what you're working through and so so getting practical do you have that one do you have that one person who you can be completely open and honest with who knows what you're struggling with right now who knows what you're longing for what your hopes are i think you need that, you know that person to be someone not just your spouse as well. Not just your spouse. Proverbs twenty seven seventeen As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The relationships I've grown the most in have been the ones that haven't always been easy and have started some sparks along the way. Deep biblical community that's built around and focused on maturation in Christ is hard to find. Relationships with others that are built around knowing, walking, following hard after Jesus Christ are difficult to find. You know, it's really easy to come around for a barbecue, isn't it? You know, it's really easy to say, hey, come over, you know, let's have some fun. We'll chuck a shrimp on the barbie. Oh, why on earth would you do that? And why is it Australian? We call them prawns, not shrimp. Anyway, anyway. Um, beside the point it's really easy to have those those very casual conversations you know come around join over a meal but it's not as easy to go deeper into the deeper conversations they don't come up as easily do they ones that are based around telling the truth to each other and they can cause some sparks have you ever seen someone working on a forge you know hammering steel causes sparks but sometimes we need to be hammered by the truth in our blind spots in a loving way a few years ago um i uh, was pulled aside by a Christian brother and fellow pastor. And he asked me if I was aware that I would often give the cold shoulder to people who weren't uh, signing up or on board with what I was doing in my area of ministry, but maybe had chosen to invest their time and energies in somewhere else where I wasn't involved. Was I aware that if that I gave them the cold shoulder and maybe even made them feel unwelcome when they were present at the things I was running? See, this was a massive blind spot. I didn't even see it. I've always invested in those around me, always focused on building into the teams around me and expending energy towards them to build up and encourage them that I didn't even see that other people were feeling ignored, neglected, or were even feeling unwelcome because my posture towards them was not the same posture that I had towards the leaders I was training and investing into. My focus was so narrow 
that I didn't see how I was coming across to those outside my focus. You know, I was glad that we had the relationship where truth and honesty were valued and love was shown and expressed and we weren't afraid of a few sparks. Have you got people around you that can be that for you? Hebrews 3.13 But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I don't think I need to say anything more on that verse, do I? I'll just leave it there to ponder for a bit. The thing is that you might say though, Aaron, doesn't this mean opening up and sharing with someone? Doesn't this mean that putting myself in a vulnerable position. Isn't that dangerous? Isn't it dangerous that someone could could share out of turn? Isn't it dangerous that someone could speak of the secrets that we had talked about and that could come back and bite me? Yeah, it's true. That can happen. It's happened to me. But you know what? As someone who has, in these sort of relationships, at times been betrayed, it was worth it. The blessings from a relationship like that far outweighed the moments of betrayal. And it's because these relationships are ones I've had over many years in my life with many different people. And so there are times when human nature can get the better of someone. We're all fallen. We all sin. It's part of life, unfortunately. But I think it is it's foolish to be quiet and not have someone that you can share with and be open with and not keep secrets from. Someone who knows you and walks with you. So what do we do with hypocrisy? Well, I think we have to be on our guard and we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. How gracious is God that he has saved us. Who are we that God would choose to save us? We need to try to not be more than who we are. You're never going to grow in the knowledge of God and of the Word of God if you pretend that you already know the Word of God and become too proud to seek help for it. You're never going to walk in victory over your wrestle with lust or wrestle with gossip or your wrestle with anger. You know, if you pretend that you don't have an issue, you hem yourself in. You'll never be able to grow in boldness in evangelism if you keep pretending that you are bold when you're not. You're never going to develop a robust, intimate prayer life with a father if you pretend that you have one when you don't. It becomes a necessity that we are honest and honest with ourselves. We need to repent of the veneer. Repent of pretending that we are more than we are. See, Peter's accusation is that Ananias lied to God not just to Peter. You know, we are easily fooled. You can fool me very easily, but you definitely cannot fool God. The second condition I want to talk about in, is in Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. And you might notice I've skipped over pretty much Acts chapter 5, right? Um, but that pretty much repeats exactly what happened last week um, with opposition to the gospel. So Acts 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on table. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They also, um, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmesan, uh, sorry, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God was spread. 
the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so culturally what was occurring was that the Jews, you know, for, for a fair long time had been scattered, you know, all over the then known region of the world, you know, the Asia Minor and all through Greece and Rome and everywhere. You know, Jews were scattered. But as they grow old, couples, you know, quite old and close to death would often head back to the Holy Land so that they could die and be buried in the Holy Land. And so you had these Greek-speaking Greek Jews who only knew Greek who were then in Jerusalem. And these Greek-speaking or Hellenized Jews, as they called them, were then, if the husband died and the widow remained, she couldn't work and she couldn't provide for herself. And so she went to the church to be helped because there was no thing called welfare. There was no pension. You know, they were away from their family. All their family was, was back in Greece. And so they were alone and they were being what they felt was discriminated against. They weren't being given the food the same as the Jewish Jews, if you know what I mean, the first century local Jewish Jews. Now, at first, it kind of looks like there were all these cliques forming in the Jerusalem church because how often have we seen those in churches that you and I have attended? You know, the group over there, the group over there. You know, I would love to preach about that because I think that cliques are very unhealthy in the church. They make you feel like you either belong or you don't belong. You know, if you're in the clique, then you are fine. But if you aren't in the clique, you don't feel like you belong and you can feel judged and like you don't measure up to be worthy of being part of the clique. But unfortunately, that's not what the text is talking about. There's no rebuke in this text. There's no repentance in this text. It would have been nice if there was because that would have preached really well. But what we read that there was a complaint in the church. The apostles heard the complaint. They received it and restructured how Jerusalem was running in order to meet that need. So one thing that always occurs in church dynamics is that when you're dealing with an organism and an organization simultaneously, then you're going to be looking at things that are tweaked and changed in order to meet the needs of the people who are there. And so the church doesn't just change in order to change, but at times will modify how it's operating in order to make disciples in a more holistic and healthy way. One of the things that that happens in the church um, is that things become sacred very quickly. How often have you heard the argument over where the communion table should go or, or over, you know, which songs we should be singing or whether the pulpit should be here or here? You know, these, these little moments of frustration well up inside of each, each of us because, hold on, something's different. There's been some change happening. You know, but as I said before, change is a great metaphor of life. One of the things that happens in the church is that the job of those leading the church, we've been tasked with how can we be as good as possible and, and facilitate as much as possible the, the mission that we've been given is to make disciple making disciples. And so that's what we've been tasked with, to bring glory to God by making disciples. So a healthy church invites feedback and it gives opportunities for issues to be raised, concerns to be brought forward. You know, that's why we have members meetings. That's why you can always chat with me or one of the elders or the leaders about things because we want to hear from you. And then from there... The elders and the leaders of the church must be free to tweak and change in order to best take advantage of the context and the time to best make disciples who will follow hard after Jesus. See, the church is not static. It is a living, breathing organism. And so there are times where you and I will be asked to lay down our personal preferences in the hope that God might accomplish something mightier than 
if I had have just held on to my personal convictions as though they were biblical convictions, or if I held on to my personal preferences, thinking that that was the best way to honour Christ, when that was really just my personal preference. See, our conviction is God saves. Our conviction is the gospel is the way that God saves. Our conviction, you know, is that we stand on the word of God. Our theology informs our philosophy which informs our practice, and so we are completely built on the Word of God because that's the source and the foundation for everything. But every now and then, we have to move around the furniture, don't we? You know, you don't have the same setting up of your lounge room your whole life. You know, a piece of furniture might no longer suit your needs, and so you move it on. You know, you might want to move the TV from this corner to that wall, and so you'll change the orientation of your room because that better suits your family life. It's the same in a church. Change will happen. Not much has happened so far, though, has it? But it will happen because... That's the very nature of life. So I want to finish this morning by asking, may we be men and women fighting the fight against hypocrisy, walking in the type of community that can point out our blind spots, learning to preach the gospel all the more to ourselves as we feel the need and desire to hide things about ourselves, to hide attitudes, to hide addictions, to hide actions. And may we be men and women. May we be those who are so passionate about our own maturing in Christ and enter into personal relationships and purposeful relationships of encouragement, discipleship, accountability, support and spiritual growth together and to get, and continue to fight against hypocrisy in our own lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that encourages and inspires us. And Lord, at times it even brings fear. We look at the example of Ananias and Sapphira and Lord, it is a fearful one because Lord, their hearts were exposed, their deceit was laid bare before their faith community. And Lord, you took their life because of hypocrisy. They were hypocrites. Lord, may you help us guard against the drift towards hypocrisy. Lord, may we continually preach the gospel to ourselves that, Lord, we are sinners saved by grace. May we never forget that fact and never move past the fact that, Lord, we are in process. We have not arrived yet. Our destination is is an eternity with you. But Lord, may your spirit continue to convict our hearts of areas where we have not placed under full submission to you, but instead have held on to that. And Lord, may you send people into our lives who we can have honest, open relationships with. You know, I've, I've, I've called them discipleship relationships because that's, that's, that's biblical language. Making disciples, learning, teaching, growing together and becoming disciple, making disciples. Lord, may we have those relationships here. May they begin, may they flourish, and may they grow, and may they permeate our church here. May it be a natural part of what Rangaratta Baptist Church is, is a church full of disciple-making disciples, ones that follow hard after you. And so, Lord, may we continue the fight against hypocrisy, and may we do things with the right heart and the right attitude, ones that glorify you in your name and bring joy to those around us and to you. In your name I pray. Amen.